Good morning. I'm going to step way back from that microphone because I think it's a little hot this morning. Um, I think I turned that on. There we go. I'm good? Everyone can hear me? All right. Sounds very muffled up here. Maybe I've got stuffy ears. I don't know. Um, This morning, we are looking at the arrival of Christ again. uh, We're talking about the Incarnation over several weeks, and the story of the Incarnation, the way in which Jesus arrived in this world. And if you remember last week, uh, I told you a little bit about this idea that historically, if we look at the people that are in the lineage of Jesus, a lot of them are maybe not the first people you would choose to place in the genealogy of Jesus. We talked a little bit about this idea that God chose to work through people who had real, significant, sometimes glaring problems in their lives. And Lorinda and I were talking about this earlier this week. You know, I was, I was reflecting on whether or not I'd made all the points I intended to make. And one of the things I said is, you know, isn't it interesting that God chose so many messed up people for Jesus to come from? And she said, well, it's not like he had any other choice. We're all a little bit messed up. See, Lorinda's really smart. Uh, she, she kind of understands things. That was sort of one of the points I wanted to make last week, and I don't know if I drove that home. Any family that Jesus came from would have to be just a, a little messed up. They'd have to have some baggage, a family history that you could look back on, and there were maybe some skeletons in the closet, because the only kind of people that God had to work with were imperfect people. But we have two individuals that we arrive at in Scripture from Abraham's family line who are at least a just man and a favored one of God. Not perfect people, certainly, but good people, wholesome people, salt of the earth kind of people, right? I think a lot about those two individuals and what their plans might have been. As as a father myself, as a husband myself, I know that when uh, these two individuals first met and decided that they were going to get married, before they'd even really talked about like wedding dates, before he'd even proposed, they had already decided what their family was going to look like. A little bit foolishly, although fortunately for them, God was pretty compliant with their desires for what their family would look like. You see, uh, they both knew going into things that they wanted to have two kids, Ideally, a boy and a girl. That the boy would be the older of the two, that the girl would be the younger. Obviously, we don't have any control over those things, but this was our idealized vision of how things would look. And we settled on a name for the boy, Micah, and we settled on a name for the girl, Emma. And then we dated for three more years before we ended up getting engaged and getting married and all that. So, like, early on, very early in our courtship, we knew what we wanted our families to look like. And we did our darndest to make sure that it was going to happen because we wanted our children to be like three to five years apart. And three years apart from one another they are. Three years and 12 days, as a matter of fact. We timed it pretty well. We worked hard to arrive at the goal, the the vision that we had for our children. You see, there are good times to have kids. There are slightly less good times to have kids. And then there are times that are just completely inconvenient all around. 
we tried our best to ensure that when we had the kids fit into our timeline, our desires. And again, I want to make it really clear. I understand a lot of people don't have that option. Having kids is not always as simple as saying, all right, you know, we've been married for two years now. It's time to start trying to have number one. And then having number one nine months after you decided that you wanted to have number one. It's a little difficult for most people to say, all right, you know, it's been three, uh, uh, two, and, two years and three months now. We should start working on number two. And then nine months later, they've got number two, right? That's not how it works for most people. And I want to confess this morning that Lorinda and I had it tremendously easy in planning our family and arriving at our family plan. Now, nothing after that has gone according to plan, but the arrival of our two children was timely in a sense. It fit up with our expectations and what we wanted for our lives. That said, when we look back on like the last several months of Micah's uh, pre-delivery, things went a little rocky for us. Initially, the doctors had said that our due date was the end of January, late January, uh, that Micah was supposed to arrive uh, closer to February than to the first of the year. And so we anticipated that, and all of our plans revolved around the idea that Micah was going to be a late January, maybe even early February baby if he arrived a little bit late. But as we got closer to Christmas time, things weren't going particularly well for us. You see, Lorinda... When Lorinda gets pregnant, she gets very pregnant. I know that it's like an, uh, an on-off sort of thing. There's not like pregnant and not... It, it is pregnant and not pregnant, right? There's no middle ground there. But Lorinda doesn't have a whole lot of room for a baby to go into. Like, uh, it, it, she would just go out. And I chose, because Lorinda told me to, a flattering picture in which she's sitting down and everything. This is before she had fallen, I think. Uh, but, but it's really important to understand... The last several months of pregnancy for Lorinda in both instances of having children were not a comfortable time. And any woman that's sitting in the room right now who's ever been pregnant says, well, duh, it's never a comfortable time at the end of your pregnancy. For Lorinda, it was particularly uncomfortable with Micah. At the beginning of December, Micah decided it was time to come. And the problem with that was that as far as we were concerned, he was going to be two months early. And so we went to see her OBGYN, and the OBGYN put her on bed rest and said, you know what, for the next several weeks, we want you to just stay still. This morning, actually, I was uh, commiserating with uh, Andy about how difficult it is to tell our wives to stay still. Like, we would never do that, but the doctor will do that. And then we can say, hey, you know, didn't your doctor tell you to... And then we get the glare, right? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I had to get babysitters to come and watch Lorinda. Her best friends would come and they'd sit with her and make sure that she didn't get like up on a step stool and try to reach the top shelves and you know do a lot of house cleaning and things like that. Lorinda is a little bit stubborn. She's very smart, but she's a little bit stubborn. So she went on bed rest for several weeks and things went well. We reached a point where the doctor said, you know what, everything is okay Lorinda, you're off bed rest. If you deliver tomorrow, it'll be all right. But we think that you're going to make it to mid-January at this point. And by the way, we now realize uh, Micah was supposed to be a mid-January baby all along. They had underestimated the length of time that he had developed and gestated. They just commented on how large his head was. And fortunately, he's grown into it, but as a baby, it was big. 
So Lorinda got off bed rest. And the next day, after we had gone grocery shopping and made a little bit of an outing out of the house, and she had the opportunity to see the outside world and realized that people still existed, something happened in Portland. This was the year of 2008. And many of you know that in 2008, Portland had probably the most significant snowstorm in over 100 years. In fact, I want to read a little article from the Oregonian here. It says, just a little less than 10 years ago, this was a couple years ago that they published this article, it started to snow in the Willamette Valley, and then it kept snowing. Then it snowed harder, followed closely by more than half an inch of ice, followed, of course, by more snow. The trio of storms that smacked northwest Oregon in December 2008 broke records, shuttered entire icy freeways, and brought Portland to a grinding halt. It also brought the metro area its first white Christmas in a decade. But overall, the pounding snows, which came on the last shopping weekend of the holiday season, did more harm than good. In the intervening 10 years, Portland has seen its share of winter storms, and the city has learned valuable lessons about how to respond to snow, even if it happened later than sooner. The day after Lorinda got on bed rest, the snowstorm began. And we lived on one of those little side streets, 86th Avenue in, in southeast Portland, and there was no chance that they were going to try to work their way between the cars that were parked too closely together to plow the little side streets in Portland. And so we were stuck in. There was no getting out. It was really unfortunate for Lorinda, who had been so excited to be off bed rest, and we woke up the next morning to our car being frozen to the ground, to being piled with snow up on either side of it. And for several days, that continued to be the case. It was, it was a winter wonderland, but it was not so much a winter wonderland for Lorinda. She was particularly unhappy about it, because it meant we probably weren't going to be going to see family for Christmas. My family lived down in Salem. Our plans were always, on Christmas Eve, we would go over to her parents' place, which was just a handful of blocks away, but we couldn't even get out of our driveway if we wanted to do that, let alone drive down for Christmas Day with my folks. Fortunately, the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve, things started to thaw a little bit. We were able to get out of our driveway. We drove down the street. We very carefully and cautiously made it down to her parents' place. We spent the night there praying and hoping that the roads would be clear enough for us to drive down to Salem the next day. And we hopped in the car the next morning, and we drove down to Salem. And, of course, we got to Salem, and there was no white on the ground anywhere. It was ridiculous. We couldn't understand how such a localized event would have happened. It was almost the worst Christmas ever in a lot of ways. Lorinda, who is desperately needing time with family, to be out of the house, to maybe feel a little bit of relief and comfort from the people who loved her about her situation that was nearly over, but probably felt like an eternity away, was all on the verge of being shattered. And at the last minute, things went much better. And to this day, we tell the story over and over and over again about how things could have been but weren't. And we got to welcome Micah into the world at an appropriate developmental stage on January 14th, 2009. He was not a tax write-off baby in 2008, unfortunately. Our plan 
mostly went the way we expected with a few hiccups along the way. And I'd imagine for most of us in the room who are parents, we could tell similar stories about the arrival of our children. Even if things went according to plan, even if we were expecting things at a certain time in a certain way, and even if they were generally positive, we all have little stories about how, you know, it wasn't quite what we expected. There was a curveball thrown at us. It was, it was more, than, more than just coincidence. It was, it was a series of unfortunate events. And then I think about Joseph. Matthew tells us now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I don't know about you, if, you've, if you are familiar with Jewish custom or not, but the person you were going to marry was decided pretty early in your life. You spent years anticipating. If you were a man, you spent years saving money to be able to build a home. In fact, you would be required to build a home in which to receive your wife at the time that you married her, because bringing her home to your parents' household was not the expected outcome. In fact, you were supposed to bring her into your household. You were supposed to have a place prepared for her to receive her so that you could be one flesh together. Your life began at that moment, together. And I'd imagine that Joseph has spent many years anticipating the day in which he would bring Mary into his home. I would imagine that for many years he had thought about what it would mean to start a family with her. That this just man, this individual who had lots of plans for his life, who was set in his career, who had really put things into place so that he could be a husband and eventually a father, seeing this unfold... His bride-to-be found with child before they had come together. This was not the plan. This is not what family planning looked like, certainly in the first century. Historically, it's just not the way that we plan families to be. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly, because he's a just man. He doesn't want her shamed over this situation. He doesn't want it to be a public spectacle. He doesn't want her to be wrung through the mud, right? But what he wants is what he's envisioned from the beginning for himself. A wife for himself. The two of them committed to one another, building a life together, sharing the life he'd anticipated for them. A child that would share his name, his resemblance, that would be his own. And now he was faced with something very different than the plans he had made for himself. And of course, we know how the story continues because an angel appears to him. It says, but he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, this is not your plan. This is not what you expected. But don't fear to take Mary as your wife. This is, if you look, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. This is God's plan. We know that Joseph had plans for his life. He had to have had plans for his life. The culture in which he was born into, the the society and the expectations they had for him, there was a right way to do things, and this was not the right way to do things. But God had other plans for Joseph. We have to go over, of course, to Luke to see the same story told from Mary's perspective. This was not... Mary's expectation. This is not what Mary would have chosen for herself. It's certainly not convenient for her under any circumstance. It was a very untimely event by all reasonable expectations from the human perspective. If there's a good time to have a child, and some would say there's not, I'd argue against that idea though, there are certainly less good times. I think Mary and Joseph, before the arrival of the angels, would have said, this is not a good time. This is not what we wanted. It's not what we expected. And yet the comfort of the angels to both of these individuals is that what is happening to them is the will of God. That it is by the Holy Spirit which this has come about. It is God's activity, the life, the Spirit of God filling the event with purpose. Filling this moment in their lives with something significantly more than they could have possibly planned for themselves. And as I read through this, as I think about the way in which they both respond to God's plan, which defies their own expectations, which goes against everything they would have wanted for themselves, you notice what they don't do. All right, okay, God, see, you can go find somebody else to take this situation on because this wasn't what I planned for myself. No, in both cases, they lean into what it is that God has asked. Joseph doesn't leave Mary. Mary doesn't say, hey, you know what? This is really inconvenient for me, God. I'm going to choose not to be the mother of the Messiah. She says, "Let let it be to me as you will it. He takes her into his home. In fact, the remainder of the story, as we all know pretty well, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he took her as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Think about this for just a second. Uh, I I had the name of my children picked out before Lorinda, and I had been dating for like six weeks. I'd imagine Joseph had ideas about what the name of his child was going to be. Maybe he, really, maybe he grew up with a kid named Joshua. You know, that's the, the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua. Maybe he grew up with a kid named Joshua who was a little bit difficult to get along with. And God tells him, hey, by the way, name your son Joshua. And he's like, oh, man, not Joshua. 
I'm reading into it a lot more than is actually there. But he doesn't choose the name of his child, of this child that he's going to raise, the parental figure he's going to be over this child. It's not his choice. And he doesn't fight God on it. He's like, you know, actually, I want to name him after my grandfather. If you go to Luke, we find out that this is actually a problem for the whole family. They don't get to pick the name of their children because Elizabeth has to name her son John, right? I want you to think about this for a moment. In every way that Joseph might have had expectations about what was going to happen, God subverts those expectations and says, it's not your plan anymore, Joseph. It's my plan. Can my plan become your plan? And Joseph leans into it. There is no fight in Joseph against God, which makes him the right sort of man for Mary the right sort of father figure for Jesus. Imagine that you're raised by someone who is constantly resisting God's plan. And it comes time for you to be crucified for the redemption of the sins of your people, for the salvation of humanity. What's been modeled to you is not an absolutely abiding adherence to the will of God but a little bit of a rebellious nature. Jesus was the son of God, but he was raised by a man who was committed to the story that God was telling, to the words of the prophets that came before him. Perhaps some of the compliance that Jesus had, some of the character that was modeled to him, was significant in him becoming the man he became. It was not a timely opportunity for Joseph or for Mary, but it was exactly what God had intended from the very beginning. And of course, we can look and we can see that even after this had happened, there were still a couple of hurdles that they had to overcome. You see, if I were going to be delivering a child, although I'm not, if Lorinda were going to be delivering a child tomorrow, we would certainly not want to travel to a faraway town in order to do such. But there was a registration on Sometimes our translations say sentence. It was a registration by the Roman government in its hundred and I think seventy-fifth year, in which Augustus decreed that all those who were citizens of Rome or under its purview must register. This was a tax issue, actually, you know, that you had to know who was from where, how much they should be taxed, what size these different families were. And so they returned to Joseph's family estate, his hometown of Bethlehem. Sometimes we read that it says, uh, and there was no room in the inn. It actually literally means the guest room in the house of the family estate. He got there and all the cousins are there. Well, here's Joseph and his pregnant wife and they probably, you know, out of wedlock, you know, all of this. (sighs) Let's stick them in the, the manger over here. It was not a convenient place to give birth. It was not a convenient time to give birth. The travel was inopportune. All of the situation surrounding the events of the life and birth of Jesus in many ways were untimely. Not the way a human being would plan them. But faithful people followed the will of God even when it was inconvenient 
even when it went against their expectations, even when it pushed against the societal norm. And so this morning, as we consider the story of Mary and Joseph, as we consider the arrival of Jesus, I want us to think for just a moment here, what what are the untimely things that God is asking of us? What are the things that are inconvenient for you and me that God asks us to do? What is it that God is calling for you in your life to follow through with that goes against your plan? I want to encourage you to consider that maybe God is less about your plan and that you are to be about God's plan. Some of us are really good planners. Some of us have long-term thinking. Some of us are, are planning out our future. We're thinking about our retirement. We're thinking about the children. We're thinking about how we'll send them off to college and the uh, degree programs that they're going to follow. And we're you know, trying to give them the right toys to be able to shape their minds so that they'll become lawyers and doctors and tax officials and, and all of that. And, and we're, we're trying to move them down the right path. And God's got other plans. Maybe we're trying to make plans for ourselves about how we're going to spend our last days or how we're going to spend our money or the kinds of ways in which we're going to get away from the place that we're currently at because it's just not where I really want to be. And maybe God is calling you either to stay where you are or to go somewhere that you've never been before. And if either one of those things is a little bit difficult for you to comprehend, like maybe I'm being called to go somewhere else, or maybe I'm being called to stay in a place I'm not particularly happy with, but it seems like God is really pushing me, are you willing to drop your plans, even if it's inconvenient for you? Is God calling you to have an untimely child? Figuratively, not literally. Some of you, that would be a terrifying prospect to have a child today. I think God is calling each one of us to things that make us uncomfortable, that defy our expectations, that push against what we would think is the right way to do things. And if your encounter with God has left you very comfortable for a very long time, Maybe you're ignoring the voice of some angels that have come to tell you, hey, God has a monkey wrench for your plans. Pray for God to defy your plans and supplant them with his own. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, some of us have a very clear image of what our lives should be like. We have planned We have contemplated, we have thought about what the easy and and smooth path would be. We have counted our dollars. We have counted our days. We have considered carefully what the next chapter looks like. And Father, sometimes when that next chapter doesn't easily click into place, we push against what it is that you're doing against the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we say, no, that's not my plan. Father, as James would tell us, we should submit our plans to you and say, if the Lord allows, and with humility say, the Lord has not allowed. 
I will go where he has told me to go. I will do what he has told me to do. Work on our hearts to be the kind of people that when our plans are exploded in front of us, we lean into what it is that you have called us to. And then give us peace in the knowledge that we are serving a God whose plan is so much greater than our own. Who has brought about a child in an untimely way for the salvation of humanity. And help us to consider the small part we can play in helping others to know that child. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways we can bless and encourage you, if you need to talk to somebody about problems that you're facing or about trials you have in telling the story you've wanted to tell, I'd be happy to visit with you. We have some elders here this morning who would be happy to sit alongside of you to help you maybe lean into the story God is telling in your life. We have some ladies here as well that would be happy to pray with you if that's what you need. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing as we continue our worship today.